I've had a life I never imagined I could have, and it's thanks to photography, and I never, ever, ever forget it or take it for granted. That was Maggie Stieber, an incredible photojournalist and one of National Geographic's Women of Vision. I'm Corinne Hall, and in this episode of the Wander Women podcast, we discuss specific projects she's worked on, including documenting her mother through dementia and the many decades she spent in Haiti. We also talk about the current media environment and how it's changing and what that means for others in the field. She lends some great advice for aspiring photojournalists. So let's start from the beginning. Can you tell me when and where photography started for you? I was a French major in university. (laughs) I was going to be a high school French teacher, and I can assure you nobody in Texas where I grew up wants to be uh, learning French, much less Spanish. So anyway, but I had a friend who took a photo course. She was studying journalism education, and she would come home with these pictures from the darkroom, and I was completely mesmerized by them, and so I took a course and that was it that I was bitten by the photo bug and I never looked back. So (laughs) happily I speak French and that was good. That's been very helpful, but photography has been a hell of a lot more fun and adventurous. So did you have any mentors? You know, um, in university I didn't except for Russell Lee, who was a farm security administration photographer. Um, which was a very famous uh, agency during the Depression in the United States. And this group of photographers would travel all over the country recording what people were going through. And Mr. Lee was quite, quite old, but he was the most enthusiastic and encouraging person. Um, and then when I, early on in my career, uh, there was an agent, Jocelyn Benzikin. She passed away. Uh, some time ago, but she was a tough little thing too. Oof, <laughs> really tough. But she was very encouraging, and if she took you on, she <laughs> she would break you and remake you. <laughs> horse, you know. I mean, you know, like we're wild horses, and somebody sort of breaks them, which is sort of sad. But anyway, uh, then they can become more thoroughbreds, I guess you would say. But anyway. And along the way, you know, there's always people who maybe just you encounter once who say just the right thing to make you understand or realize what it takes to do this and and the business. And so, but I can't, you know, I can't say exactly what else. Mm-hmm. Who else? Yeah. Do you think the industry is harder for women or do you think it's changed quite a bit? I think the industry has changed quite a lot and um, partly because there are so many more women in it and uh, that makes a big difference but I think there's some challenges for women in this business and one big part is men (laughs) because um, I think I've met a lot of I mentor a lot of women photographers just for nothing just because I, they need the encouragement and I enjoy it um, very much. But I find some of them are just scared to death to show their work and then they 
can be easily diminished by aggressive men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I think that's always been a problem for women, but some men are much nicer than others, and you just have to kind of try to be around those men who are encouraging or just, you know, at least aren't pushing you to the ground to get you out of the way mm-hmm. of a picture. Um, which I've had happen, and I've had men say very untoward things to me um, if I called them on something that I thought they did that was wrong. But generally speaking, I think there are other issues um, that are, oh dear, now I'm going to sound like this guy at Google who just (laughs) fired, but um, there are some issues that have to do with gender because I think a lot of women would like to have families. So that's a big challenge, and unless you have um, a partner who's very supportive uh, and shares the work with you of, let's say, bringing up children if that's what you want, um, then it's much harder. And I think sometimes there is this view about women that even if they're serious photographers, that at some point they'll want to have families. And so there's always this thing in the back of people's minds that their careers will be short-lived, but in fact, there's a lot of women who have had families who continue to work, and I think it's less of an issue now, but I I think it used to be more of an issue. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I think right now, just one more thing, there's an awful lot of conversation going on in the industry among women about how they are not being hired and that there's this sort of it's not an anti-woman thing at all. It just doesn't occur to people to consider women for certain jobs. And that opens up a whole other discussion. But um, there are just some things that women will do better because they can identify with somebody um, or something, uh, I think. And, and it, the same could be said for men. But at the same time, I know lots of women who cover war and I've covered a lot of violence, um, uh, although it's not, I'm not a war photographer. I don't think of myself as that. But um, so I think things are better, much better. And there are a lot of conversations being aired that need to be aired. And there's a lot of young, brave women mm-hmm. who I really admire. And I think it's exciting what's happening right now. So I think it's there's always going to be challenges for people who are more tender, and that includes a lot of men uh, are more sensitive, and that's really more what it's about, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one interesting statistic I saw the other day is that more women are traveling solo now than there are men. Yes, well, I think women are terrifically brave, actually. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think we're suited for telling other people's stories um, because we, I think, very generally speaking, you have to be so careful how you say these things because men get their feelings hurt so easily. (laughs) It's crazy. It's like be tough and have a lot of swagger, but the minute that you don't pay, you know, homage to them, they get their feelings hurt. I've had it happen so many times. But anyway, um, and then sometimes they say mean things to you. But anyway, um, uh, there's something, I think we 
can be very empathetic um, with people. And I also think we are brave uh, in ways that are not always apparent. I mean, I think the idea of having children is like hugely brave. Mm -hmm. I, I never, I chose not to do that, but I think any woman who has children is uh, an exceptional person. Um, so, but there's lots of other ways in work that we're, we're very brave and we are, we're sort of fearless. And I think it's partly we've had to be to kind of survive uh, because it's not just in this business, but just in general from the beginning of time, how men have treated women. And we somehow still here because mm -hmm. <laughs> they can't do this without us. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of family, um, I, I saw a video of you speaking on the value of family photo albums on the Photo Wings nonprofit group. Um, and it reminded me of a New York Times article I just read called Our Mothers As We Never Saw Them which kind of describes that thing, same thing you were describing in the video is that experience we have when we see our moms in their youth before they became moms and the sort of myth of a person and how valuable those photos are for us. Um, but I'm curious what you think in today's digital age with the enormity of photographs we now take. Do you think the value of those kinds of photos has changed or maybe we're being less mindful about that value. Well, I think we have not realized, we have not paid attention and realized that we're not making prints. Right. Everything is digital. And so there's not this family heirloom that has been passed down. And um, it's kind of shocking because digital is such an ephemeral thing and uh, because we take so many pictures, a lot of times, unless we're paying attention as we go along, some of these important sort of family kinds of photographs are lost. And unless you're making prints, uh, there's nothing to hand down that becomes an heirloom that's a treasure. Um, and so I think it makes our um, attention span shorter too. So we. And maybe we don't even value the photographs in the same way. I mean, it's you can take a great photo, it wins an award, and then, you know, it doesn't somehow, there's more and more coming. So somehow I think it affects our memory about things because there's just so much. But especially with family photos, uh, I think it's, I think we're losing something and we don't even realize it. Um, my mother suffered from memory loss for nine years and I photographed her constantly and I used film and also digital, but I would print everything because uh, I grew up with the family photo album and I, I feel like if my mother hadn't saved those photos and I grew up as an only child with an only parent, my mother divorced my father when I was six months old. And so if I didn't have these pictures of her family and growing up, I, I wouldn't know about my own childhood to some degree. And, um, and so I printed all of these pictures and I have to say they are, if my house caught on fire, <laughs> there's a few things I would save. And this collection of photographs of my mother that I took over this nine year period mm -hmm. would be one of the things I would save. that my cat and my cameras. That's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. 
it it's like we have a handful of photos of our own mothers but the next generation is going to have thousands of digital a digital footprint i just wonder what are they going to how are they going to sort through all of that history it's too much and it almost seems kind of materialistic now the way we take photographs especially traveling i notice people just taking one picture after the next and not really experiencing the moment which is ironic because taking pictures can actually enhance your experience if if you're mindful and not doing it constantly i i agree with that um also because there's so many selfies and what i'm always astonished at is <laughs> so people want to take selfies of themselves in front of these beautiful yeah. scenes and things but they're so big in the frame that they sort of hide the scene and it's more about oh look I was here I'm here I am at the Grand Canyon and mm-hmm. here I am at the Taj Mahal and you know you can hardly see these things but even the way that we photographed each other or ourselves in those locations um, has changed and so we're the highlight more than the place uh, is and I think that's kind of sad too because where you go and how you spend your time has a lot to do with who you are and shaping you especially as a child but um, yeah I even think we'll remember memories if that's can be said uh, in a different way because of all of these photographs that somehow look the same and yeah, I, I, I just think there's something, something is being lost. Yeah. Um, so I want to move on to talk about your mom, because I think that's, that's something I've never seen a photographer do before. Um, capture your mother, Madge, going through dementia in the last years of her life. I, for most people, this would be too difficult to do, both in the moment and even to have those photos to look back on might be too difficult. So why was it important for you to be vulnerable in your work like this? Well, first, I am a photographer. But, uh, (laughs) um, well, my mother was really my only family. And um, I realized that she was disappearing and that um, the time would come when she wouldn't remember me and that, she wouldn't be able to, to walk and she wouldn't be able to talk. And certainly those things happened. But I think um, having to face caring for somebody who's losing their memory, it, first of all, it's a really daunting task and it's frightening and um, it, it's heartbreaking. And so I decided that the way for me to cope rather than just being a puddle on the floor, you know, weeping all the time, that I would photograph her and make new memories so that I had something to hold on to uh, when she was gone. And also, I think I just wanted to look at her all the time because I knew I wouldn't be able to at some point because she would be gone. She would be gone. And so I just had this desperation to photograph her and I spent a lot of time with her. I couldn't take care of her at home because I travel too much for my work, but also I don't, it's very hard. It's, it's harder than raising a child. I think I haven't done that either, (laughs) but with a child, you're 
seeing development and with somebody who's losing their memory, you, you just see them disappearing. Um, but the camera and photographing my mother made me very brave and very strong and the camera became my shield and it allowed me in looking at her all the time and photographing her in many different situations to learn so much about how I could create a better end of life experience for her and, and for myself as well. Um, and so I took on the role of warrior. I just, just assigned myself that role of warrior and the camera was my shield. And so I had a purpose and I, I never intended to share that work with anybody. Uh, but I learned so much about how you could create this better end of life situation for your loved one. But the biggest gift, and it was a complete gift, was that I started to be able to see Madge as her own woman and not as my mother. Um, and it was the first time in my life I had ever been able to put aside those glasses that we daughters wear and how we see our mothers. Oh, it's our mother. We don't want to know that they have sex and we don't want to know that they were ever in love with three men at once or, you know, all of these things that we don't prescribe or subscribe uh, in, in thinking about our parents. And so I got to see her as her own woman and that was amazing and it allowed me to really kind of fall in love with her and, and love her in a way that I had not been able to before because we, you know, mothers and daughters can have very contentious relationships and we were both extremely strong-willed. So <laughs> that, there was that, but she was also an ex extraordinary person, uh, eccentric, but uh, brilliant and um, uh, very special. And I could appreciate that, but I could never see her past being my mother. And that was the greatest gift, I have to say, uh, that it allowed me to see her through an, or in another dimension. And um, so in the end, I could love and admire this woman in a broader sense. But the camera and taking the pictures allowed me now to have these new memories and I could look back and remember that day when she was smiling and happy or that day when she was really angry or that day when she was violent because in dementia you go through different phases and it just um, I, I mean sometimes I weep but more often than not I'm so grateful that I have these pictures and I would record her voice and I would shoot video uh, and all of those things became my family heirloom and probably the most important thing that she could leave me which you know is herself mm -hmm. and so that uh, that series really hit home for me because I've watched my both of my parents go through that and spent the last few months with both of my grandmothers watching them go through the same thing uh, it's it, it's also interesting to watch your parents go through that with their parents, um, yeah. and I think I think the dynamic that you had with your mom, both in your youth and in adulthood, is very common in our culture, 
And this series felt really culturally specific, kind of, as a witness to the American healthcare system. Do you think it's changed the way you see yourself growing old? Oh, <laughs> you bet it has. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I wanted to say this. Um, I cannot tell you how many people who I've never met have written to me and thanked me for doing that work because they started photographing their families and they were things, you know, their parents or their loved ones going through this. And uh, I just, I have this friend who I saw recently and hadn't seen her for a while and she showed me pictures that she had taken of her father going through this and she said, if it weren't for you, I never would have done it. But because you did it, it seemed that I could give myself permission. And I realized in looking at that work, how important it was, that it wasn't something to run away from, mm -hmm. but that by photographing it, I could face it. And, and yeah, so that's very exciting to me because that's what we want pictures to do is to encourage people and maybe inform them and change their minds about things. And I'm so happy still to this day, people write to me and um, I'm so encouraged that they are photographing this moment. Um, but in terms of how, yeah, I think about it a lot because I mean, I was very devoted to my mother in um, the nine years. So whenever I wasn't traveling and um, I would spend time with her and I was really lucky. I worked hard. I looked at 50, five zero places for my mother um, to live after I moved her out of her home, which is one of the hardest things I'll ever do in my life. That's a horrible day when you have to take them out of their home for the last time. Oh, my God. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But um, uh, I found this one place just 16 miles north of uh, Miami where I live and all the caregivers are Romanian and Cuban women and they love on everybody and they They're wild. They're wild and they dress everybody up every day And there are people of different ages at this assisted living facility So it's not a bunch of older people sitting around in wheelchairs, which is very depressing for mm -hmm. everybody and they have happy hour every day, which is they don't drink but you know they have a pretty wild time and everybody's dancing and playing games and it's a really tremendous place. And so what I learned about uh, myself is that um, you, you need to have good friends because I have no family now and I'm not married or with anybody. I'm, I was, but I'm not now. So um, you have to have some younger friends <laughs> who are, you kind of can count on and prepare them. I mean, you always have to have one person who you can sort of turn to and say, if something happens to me, this is what needs to be done. Um, but also the women at this place are so remarkable. And so I go every month for at least um, once a month uh, to visit because this is where my mother died. I held her in my arms as she died at this place. And I go once a month and I still know a lot of the people and it's like a second home to me. And so the women who work there are still there, and I just feel like um, maybe that's where I'll end up when I'm a, an old dame, <laughs> but, which is not tomorrow. Um, 
But sometimes I also just think, oh, you know, while I still can, I should sell everything and I should go live in a different place and I should do things. And it just reminded me not to start to think that I'm old. Um, and I think when we get to a certain age, we start to think that we're old. And people are so happy to remind us that we are. <laughs> so I think having a younger spirit is really important just for your own sake. And it actually makes you happier and live longer. But um, I also learned not to become um, reclusive, which is what my mother did. She was very reclusive. And that was very bad. So, you know, there's lots of ways to get around that. But I just learned a lot from watching her and how I could make or recreate a better experience for myself. Mm -hmm. And it just takes planning ahead and not being afraid. Uh, and finding these wild women <laughs> who will take care of you, you know. Yeah. Um well, I could talk to you about that for a long time, but uh, I'm going to move on to Haiti now. Um, I know that you've worked around the world in many countries, but spent a lot of time in Haiti, most of your time. Um, and while you covered some pretty horrific instances of violence and environmental destruction, I really admire that you felt it was an injustice to the country to only show that side of things. And so I guess that's where the audacity of beauty and photo combi were born. And can you tell me just a little bit about those two things? Oh, yes. Well, um, yes. Haiti is fascinating. It has a remarkable history that most people don't know about. It had the only successful slave revolt in the history of the world. And it, that formed the first black republic in the world. And that's huge in Haitians' hearts and minds. And it has a lot to do with even how they walk. They're so proud. And that never gets shown. They're just shown as being poor and downtrodden and victimized and and they are i mean haiti is haiti and haitians are used in all kinds of bad ways uh by outside forces um including our country um but it's an unfair depiction and uh because it's only it's not even half the story and there's great beauty in haiti and and in haitians and there's magic and i don't mean just voodoo uh, but there's this lyrical, ephemeral, sort of otherworldly tenor to the country and to the people. And um, if you allow them, they will teach you a lot of things about how to live and regard things that you might not ever realize otherwise. And so I started going when it was quiet so I could go in search of this beauty and this sort of peaceful depiction and the real Haiti. And um, and so that's what my intention is most of the time now because there's always going to be trouble in Haiti and um, there's always going to be poverty and mistreatment and great dramas. Uh, it is a very dramatic country. I liken it to being the portal between heaven and hell. And, you know, it just seems like that constantly in terms of politics and uh, the economy and how people are treated. But um, there's also all these angels, you know. There's angels and devils, but the angels are what I'm looking for now. Mm -hmm. 
So there is great beauty and it's exquisite. And so that's finally how I came to put that work together. Not only, I did a book on Haiti uh, called Dancing on Fire. And um, that was published by Aperture in 1991. Um, and it combined these two ideas. But then I started just to really try to concentrate on this softer, more extraordinary side that people don't see because they don't take the time to see it. And quite often, uh, photographers will go there because it's interesting to photograph and it's accessible and it's exciting and, you know, it can be dangerous and that's sometimes a draw for people. Mm -hmm. So I made this website, The Audacity of Beauty, in which I could offer this other point of view. And then after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, um, some young Haitian friends who lived here in the U.S. decided to move back to Haiti to rebuild their country. And we had a lot of discussions about how they could do that. And we decided that the main thing was to change the image of Haiti and so that we would teach workshops, photo workshops. And it wasn't just to teach photography to kids. We really selected uh, people who were not children, but a little bit older, you know, like 16 to 20 to even 35 years old. And we would go back, we go back and we reteach the same people again and again and again. And uh, it's basically to create a platform where Haitians can describe themselves and where they can show us who they are and what their country is like and what's important to them and what they think is beautiful and how they deal with things and it's really glorious and I I hope a lot of people will go on to photocombi.org uh, which has a <laughs> strange spelling um, but it's it's Creole um, but so they moved back and there's four Haitians and two Americans I and uh, Marie Arago who's a photographer as well and she lives in Haiti and so we put that all together and I showed the work I am fortunate enough and it is never lost on me how fortunate I am to get to work for National Geographic magazine um, on occasion and so I showed Sarah Lean who is the director of photography this work that our students were doing and she said this is amazing because really you look at the pictures and they look they could have been shot by a very sophisticated photographer. They're all very sophisticated because there's this remarkable um, history of the visual arts in Haiti and that really is almost genetic, I would say. Um, so they published a story in the December issue in 2015 called Haiti on its own terms and they hired their favorite writer who was an extraordinary writer who wrote a really, you know, extraordinary story that was right on. Um, and it was amazing and beautiful. So I, I'm really grateful to the Geographic for buying into this idea that, you know, uh, the conquerors always tell the story of others and the vanquished only get to read it. And I think it's not just in terms of Haiti, but if you really look at how all the countries all the people in the world are described, it's always a European Western point of view. It's described by Western anthropologists. It's described by, even if people aren't from the West, they're educated in the West. And it, I think our vision of 
the de- what we call the developing world is very skewed mm-hmm. and it's always told from this western european point of view that isn't doesn't have the full picture and so we miss a lot of things and we don't really i don't feel like we know the truth about a lot of things and that's how history is written it's i mean if you step back and think about it it's all really quite sad and skewed because we we don't get to see the magic you know yeah it this seems like a very proactive way to do something that i think a lot of photojournalists struggle with um i interviewed a photojournalist in thailand jonathan taylor he's from the uk he's been living in southeast asia most of his life he's still there and he was saying in the 90s he he felt like the Time magazine it boy because he covered all these terrible stories about child slavery and methamphetamine abuse and crime and murder, etc. And and you, I could tell that he struggles with that today because he loves the country so much and thinks it's so beautiful and and uh, it's almost sad that that those were kind of the only stories that made the headlines. But he he still works there today and tries to not cover that kind of stuff anymore and make it a little bit more balanced. Even though you do feel an obligation to cover those kind of stories, it's it can be hard with the media to find the balance. Yes, I, I agree. And you do have to cover those things, but gosh, nothing ever seems to change. And mm-hmm. sometimes it gets worse. But there's a saying in journalism that if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. And I, I also did a stint as a director of photography at the Miami Herald for four years, and boy, what an education that was. Newsroom culture is a whole other beast, and it was amazing. And, you know, all this talk in journalism about being objective is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Excuse my language, Mm -hmm. but it's ridiculous because you have a few people deciding what's important. And depending on how they were raised and how broad their interests are, has everything to do with what we get to read about. And... There's um, a hierarchy of power. I mean, there's just, it's fascinating, actually. But um, once in a while, you're lucky enough to have executive editors in charge and directors of photography in charge who think in a different way and create a broader vision and um, understand that sometimes the quietest person in the room has the best idea but also that there's different ways to tell stories and that there are different stories that we can be telling. And um, I think maybe that's happening a little bit more than it used to, but the fact that it's so um, challenging now uh, to um, even have uh, the money to have a publication. I mean, we've lost a lot of publications and budgets are smaller, so, and pages are smaller Mm -hmm. in, publications and and because advertising money has gone somewhat to the internet um, and people don't always understand how this all plays out but at any rate um, yeah I mean all we see is suffering and I think it also creates a kind of a pallor for the world that there's not a lot of hope and uh, maybe it's true I don't know but um, it's just interesting to think about that and how stories are told and how that's decided and you know who gets to tell them and mm-hmm. you know what we're really learning. And I think a lot of 
young people go into photography, and I certainly was like this. I was sort of, my mouth, my jaw dropped to the floor at being in awe of being able to go out and photograph the world. And I wasn't interested so much at that time in covering violence or anything. I was just, it was the world, for heaven's sakes. I mean, gosh, gee whiz, look at it. <laughs> and it was magnificent and extraordinary. And... Uh, and I still feel that way, um, but um, I don't know if sometimes that gets lost. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think because there are so many more photographers, and of course there's a lot of people who want to be photographers with all their hearts, but they don't really understand that it's also a business and that there's only so much room for people or that you could get something published and think, oh, okay, I'm on my way, and then nothing ever else happens. So mm -hmm. it's very tough. But um, I hope people don't lose that sort of being in awe of the world because mm -hmm. for as many bad things that are happening, there are extraordinary, exquisite things that are happening. And, and there are some people who I think with their work can inform and maybe even change some things. I, I mean, the first person who comes to my mind like that is Stephanie Sinclair, who went to cover the war in Afghanistan and and noticed that these little girls were being married off to older men. And, you know, like a 10-year-old girl would be married to a 60-year-old man. And, um, and so she really started photographing that as an issue because I don't, you know, it's a long historical cultural part of Afghanistan, but I don't think people realized it. And so not only did she make that her mission with her photography, um, but then she started um, this organization, Too Young to Wed. And so now she raises money to send those girls to school and to try to, you know, create a better opportunity for them. So that's somebody who I just think is an amazing person mm -hmm. to create that for some young women who otherwise would probably have a pretty tough life. Yeah, I, I recall seeing that as well. Um, but I, I want to go back. I think it's interesting that this idea is spreading a little bit that we can empower people to tell their own stories through photography. Um, okay. And especially this can be applied to other nonprofits. Um, I work at an environmental research group and our our visual storytelling is lacking a bit. So I'm wondering what kind of argument you would make for the importance to have that element supporting your nonprofit. Um, I think that the nonprofit who allows people to tell their own stories or encourages it or has it as part of their um, mission or aim when it comes to informing people about their work uh, would be remarkably powerful. And because, I mean, when you work for a lot of nonprofits, let's say you go to do some work for an NGO, and I, I've done that before, and um, I would get to a project and that women were doing, uh, let's say planting a garden. And um, I would be taken to a room where all the women were dressed up in their fine clothes 
because the photographer was coming and they weren't doing the project. And so I said, well, this is not what I'm supposed to photograph. And it was usually the local um, supervisors who are locals who want the people back in New York or Washington or wherever to see that the women are beautiful and that they're happy, but they don't understand that showing the women what um, what the women do and how the nonprofit or the NGO actually works and functions is the thing that, first of all, the NGO or nonprofit wants to see, but also this shows the public uh, who might be willing to support uh, what's going on. So that's one issue, but I think if you could have people telling their own stories under the guidance of a photographer, perhaps, or alongside a photographer, you can create this lovely kind of one-two punch that would set you apart. I mean, if I had an NGO or a nonprofit, I would absolutely encourage, you know, I would insist actually that we would provide cameras and where people could take their own pictures and pictures of themselves because you're bound to get a lot of intimate moments. And that's what, I mean, I noticed that in the work of Photocombeat. I mean, these young people photograph things that no matter my having worked in Haiti for 30 years, I'm not, I'm never going to get. And, uh, and it's real and it's beautiful and it's an intimate moment. So I think nonprofits should absolutely think about doing this because also I'm tired of seeing, you know, smiling pictures of kids mm -hmm. and headshots of kids smiling because if they're so damn happy, then why do they need the nonprofit? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the thing I, I've always been startled about. I mean, we want to see happy children, and if they're actually realizing something from the work of the nonprofit, then they should be smiling, we hope. But it's, I don't think people who put out the, um, I'm sorry, the pamphlets or the brochures or even the websites that support these things, that are, this is what our nonprofit is about, are sometimes I think they're clueless. Um, a website is a little easier because you can have video and there's moving things and audio and that's always a richer experience for somebody but um, I just think the whole thing could be rethought it's not that it's only going to be those people the people in the country that you're photographing telling their stories but having them told alongside like a little sidebar story or a place on your website where you could say pictures by the people that we help could you know really be an enriching experience and I think you'd get more support mm -hmm. I agree <laughs> um, well, tell those people you work with I know I know it's a well the thing the challenging part for us I think is covering climate and energy type topics um, yes. it's that, hard yeah well, did, were you the one who I told um, yes to we... look up Gideon Mendel I did those were <laughs> great examples great examples absolutely and those are pictures he took but I I think I can't remember if he goes further than that a step further but um, yeah absolutely that boy if that doesn't say everything um, but I think another I so I just taught a workshop in Mexico City and one of my it's called daring to see the world in a new way and it's precisely about this how we photograph the same issues because issues never really go away there's always going to be poverty and mm -hmm 
all kinds of things that never go away. And now we have the environment, which is damn hard to photograph because it's everything is happening in kind of slow motion. Um, but we see the results. I mean, in you know, quick time, quite often. Um, and if you think about time in terms of the world and this sort of, you know, like people have only been around for a certain amount of time, but the earth was here before that and dinosaurs and all of that. So, um, so everything is happening in quick time in terms of nature, but to us it's hard to photograph because it's, we're not on the same time frame. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, so one of my students wanted to photograph trash and I said, okay, what about it? And she said, there's just so much of it. And I said, you're right. And I found these stories online about how right now there's enough plastic bags, just plastic bags in the world to cover the whole of New York City in uh, like something that would be 20 miles deep. And uh, that's startling. And plastic doesn't, it never deteriorates. I mean, it might break apart, mm -hmm. but it never deteriorates. Anyway. So I said, go out and photograph plastic like you were a warrior for Mother Nature because it's really, most of the pictures are really boring. Like we see dirty beaches with all this plastic and, you know, cans and all kinds of crap on it, but they're just not compelling pictures. And I mean, she went out and she would just find one item and she would blast it. And the work was in your face. It was so powerful. And it was very artistic, uh, which I think was really smart because if people feel like they've seen the same picture again and again, mm -hmm. they don't even get it anymore. But here were these, like, here's a styrofoam cup stuck in a fence and like, pow, she would make it very contrasting and very moody. And it was like, pow, you know, here's an assault on mother nature. And it was extraordinary work. It was really powerful. And I thought, well, here you go. Here's a different way to see this issue. So I think that's the big challenge for us in terms of the environment. And I mean, even the fact that so many people went out to cover the people in South, uh, was it North Dakota or South Dakota where the land, the pipeline was being laid? North Dakota, right? During a harsh winter. I mean, even those people who stood their ground as much as they could, and then people who went out to photograph that, that was a very important thing to cover. It was a different way, and it reminded us also of what Native Americans are about, mm -hmm. because we always depict them as these drunk, drugged people, um, which is so unfair mm -hmm. and so bad, so bad. It's a sin. It's so bad. But here they were being warriors, and I, God, I loved it that it was getting so much of of attention because it wasn't just about the environment but about the people who live off the land and who regard it as sacred and that it's you know I mean that's amazing that helps a lot with um, how how you go about approaching the environment in a different way um, but there's something that I know I struggle with a lot in photography is approaching people, especially when there's a language barrier or a very sensitive situation, how would you go about teaching someone how to approach this type of situation? And, you know, so you don't feel like you are photographing people 
just for merely being vulnerable, do you think you have to establish a relationship first in all ways, or what's your kind of rule for that? Um, yes, always. <laughs> um, with Native Americans, it's you, it's hard, and you have to take the time because so many people come in and they say, oh, these photographs are going to change everything and make things better. And of course they don't. And the native people know that and they know it's bullshit. Um, and uh, you have to earn their respect and they're hardened. They're very skeptical and hardened. Now, not everybody. You'll meet some very sweet little old ladies who, you know, are more welcoming or children are always welcoming, but there are people who have been burned and treated badly and portrayed as one thing when that's not everything that describes them. So you have to go in, I think, in a very humble way and you have to get people to collaborate with you. I think as long as you, as long as you approach it as a collaboration, I think you're always going to have better luck. I, I know that it's hard to go talk to strangers, but you just have to do it. And I know it's hard to get into some people's lives, but if you want to photograph that sort of thing, you have to learn how to do it. And I, there's several ways. Uh, I created, people don't think this about me, but I'm actually a pretty shy person. Uh, but I created this public persona. This is my professional persona. And this is how I present myself to the world as a professional photographer. That's not to say I'm not who I am. I'm not faking it. I just had to create, again, this armor. If I wanted to be a warrior for other people, I have to wear an armor, but I have to wear their armor. Um, the other thing is, I'm a big believer that as much as you can, you should learn about the history, the culture, the music, the art, um, the dances, in the case of Native people and what those mean, um, as much as you can about the literature, uh, because quite often in fiction uh, is where you read the truth. Um, so you have to learn all of that as much as possible, but then you go in like a baby, like you know nothing. There's nothing more irritating than somebody who thinks because they read a few books that they know everything, mm -hmm. uh, or that their grandmother is full blood Cherokee. doesn't mean that they know anything uh, because they weren't raised in that tradition. Um, and I'm saying that because my grandmother was. <laughs> but my mother was half Cherokee, but I wasn't raised in that tradition. I mean, they weren't living on a reservation or anything. So uh, anyway, um, and then you forget all of that and you learn at the knee of the people. You, you say, please take my hand and teach me about yourself. Please take my hand and let me learn from you about who you are. Please take my hand and let me see the beauty of your life or your country. And I also love to sit and say, so this is a collaboration. This is not me coming in to tell your story. This is you telling your story and I'm just writing it down. I'm just the blank page. I'm just the blank film. I'm just the little SD card. Um, and it's entirely up to you. And I tell you, um, it makes a big difference. So you do your homework, but then you, so that you're not just ignorant, you go in and, and you do that. I think those are the things that I would say would be the most helpful, but at the 
base of all of it is that you really have to be interested in them and their stories, not just interested in them as something to photograph. You know, exactly. being vulnerable with them, and it it sounds like it's more of a time investment than people might yes. assume it is. Absolutely, absolutely. Otherwise, you know, I mean, you can go, for example, uh, the Cherokee. Uh, nation has two parts like there's the eastern band and the western band the western band lives on tribal owned land in Oklahoma but it's not a reservation the eastern band uh, and these are more the traditional people and the diehards not to say that there aren't traditional people in Oklahoma but there's just this is where the Cherokees lived and where they you know by the great smoking mountains and where they were driven off but a lot of them hid and that's why you have the traditions remaining but on that reservation uh, which you have to drive through to get to the Great Smoky National Park there are a lot of native people who dress like the Plains Indians which the Cherokees Cherokees were very advanced uh, when the Europeans came and they wore turbans actually and not feathers but everybody thinks Indians wear feathers and buckskin and so they dress like that and they pose with tourists for five dollars a pop and um, I mean, you could go in and just photograph all of the, it's called chiefing. You could just go in for a day or two and just photograph all those chiefs uh, and do a little series about chiefing, but, uh, which is not a bad idea. Maybe I should go do it. <laughs> um, if, but you're never gonna get to the real stuff that way mm -hmm. uh, because you're just like, you know, pop, pop, pop. and moving on and so that's just us looking at them and it's not even really who they are so it's kind of like yeah there you go mm -hmm. the cowboy view of Indians <laughs> um, <laughs> I have so many questions but I think I'm gonna just keep it pretty short um, and ask you one last one the the media landscape is changing rapidly, as you know. Um, news outlets now outsource photos to amateurs or they put on these contests to curate free content quite often, um, picking up images from social media and so on. Do you feel optimistic about photojournalism as an industry or do you think it's something that kind of has to reinvent itself? Because it's kind of it's changing. It's hard to do this as a profession nowadays. Yes, it's 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 almost impossible unless you really understand. First of all, that as much as it's wrapped up in your desires and dreams and the tug at your heart to tell stories, um, it's a business. And if you don't understand how the business works. Uh, forget it so like I teach a lot and I'm astonished at how people let's say who are studying full-time don't know their market and they're not looking at magazines they don't go to a Barnes & Noble and look at the variety of magazines that's their market everybody does everybody think they're just gonna work for the New York Times <laughs> or Washington Post and Time magazine uh, or you know something like that but so they don't do their homework. So where can my pictures be published and what kinds of publications are there and who are they and go look at them and how they use, not just online, but how 
but in print and how do they use pictures and who are they using and you know things like that and who's the picture editor and how can I get in touch with them and understanding that the best way to get your foot in the door anywhere is doing a long-term project and uh, on something where you show it in a different way or a different aspect and so all of those things and I gotta tell you a lot of professional photographers teach but they don't teach that part they don't and I know this because everybody tells me they don't uh, because at the same time I'm teaching I'm teaching my um, what is that word uh, competition mm -hmm. but I really get great joy out of it to be honest and I'm not worried uh, in sharing this information that uh, it's the end of my career. But I've been doing this for a long time, so uh, it's not, I mean, one does worry, don't get me wrong. There are months when I'm kind of worried, but um, <laughs> then just when it looks dismal, suddenly there's, you know, the heavens open up and ta-da, there it is. So. Um, but I have to make that happen sometimes too, and making things happen, having ideas, all of these things that people just actually won't tell you uh, quite often. But there's other ways to find out, and it depends on how curious you are. But um, I think though how stories are told and photojournalism is changing, and partly it is exactly for the reasons that you said, that there's a lot of uh, sites, especially online sites that are looking for free content and people think oh well it's a way to get my work seen and right. you know, maybe somebody will see it and certainly Instagram there are picture editors who are giving assignments based on somebody's Instagram account which means that you have to think about what you're going to post and not just photograph here's what I had for breakfast mm -hmm. here's my new shoes here's another self me in front of the Taj Mahal you know so <laughs> things like that um, you can really curate it and that's important um, and sometimes they're looking at those before they look at your website. But the thing that bothers me the most, because I always feel like at some point, if you don't get how to do this as a business, it's going to become apparent to you, as heartbreaking as it will be, that you're simply not going to make it. And that's sad, but that's life. Um, I mean, it's the same with acting, right? Everybody goes to Hollywood and they think, oh, I'm going to be an actress, mm -hmm. or I'm going to be on the stage in New York. And I mean, there's just, that doesn't happen for everybody. But the thing that bothers me the most is that now we have a lot of people who I think are lying and cheating in terms of what they're producing and they're putting it forward as the truth. And we've had some severe cases of this. Um, it's one thing to manipulate your work in Photoshop, but adding things and taking things is a big no-no mm -hmm. because you break the trust for everybody. You know, it's not like just one big name does it and then he's a bad boy. But that why should people believe any of us? And then there's um, been some younger people who have stolen pictures and put their name on them. Um, taken parts of pictures from other photographers and put them into their pictures and uh, even um, photograph things in a way that had to do with um, somebody being raped um, so or uh, somebody being put in a position where it took the health of 
harmed the health of a woman and her baby and making up stories that weren't even true and call it and photographing it and setting everything up and those people get outed because of uh, at some point you get caught and there's always somebody especially for people who are having success by doing this manipulation there's always going to be somebody who wants to out you and who will out you and um, there's been a lot of controversies, you know, at World Press Photo about these issues in the last years. And so what I would say is don't lie, don't steal, because it will catch up with you. And you can destroy either a long career or one that's just getting off, you know, uh, and really working. And I'm kind of astonished that quite often I would not be surprised if it was, a, you know, like... Somebody who doesn't have a lot of money and has worked really hard and just, you know, doesn't know any better because they haven't actually been educated about those things. But it turns out that quite often it's very privileged people, uh, privileged photographers and people who are privileged in their lives, uh, well-educated people, uh, people who are even adored early on in their careers. And... And uh, I just would say that those people diminish all of us and they impoverish uh, photojournalism because at some point, who do we believe? Who are we going to have faith in and who do we believe? And uh, it's, it fills me with dismay and it hurts other people desperately, you know, because there are some organizations that work very hard to raise money to give grants to emerging photographers, which at least is a little broader than people under 30, uh, because I know some emerging photographers who are remarkable and they're 40, you know, but their work is extraordinary. Um, so that's a little broader term, but I, I'm just, uh, I'm deeply saddened by it. And, uh, so people will work very hard to make some things possible for younger people. And then they, they spit on it. And they don't even think that that's what they're doing, but they're spitting on it. Yeah. And they spit on tradition and they spit on the truth. And I'm sorry, uh, those are people I will never trust again. And even they're people I've supported and encouraged. And that's, whew, nothing makes you feel worse than feel like you've been taken. Mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, yeah, I think it's so much harder uh, to be a photographer. And... But there are so many ways to do it that we don't take into account because we just look at these big names and we think, oh, I want to do that. People say to me all the time, oh, I want to work for National Geographic. Well, if you look at the magazine, if you consider that your whole body represents what you shot for a story, your little bitty finger thumbnail is what gets in the magazine. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's so much more work than you ever imagined. Mm -hmm. But it's not impossible. And look, I'm just a little Texas dirty here, you know. <laughs> I worked my way through school, and I'm I'm nobody. I didn't come from blue blood, or, but I've had a life I never imagined I could have, and it's thanks to photography. And I never, ever, ever forget it or take it for granted because um, it's extraordinary. And I'm. I'm so grateful for it, but I'm not afraid and I work hard 
and I encourage other people. I found in this business being generous and supportive is so much easier and it's so much more fun than being selfish and lying and cheating and because eventually you get caught and being mean to other photographers and being competitive which is exhausting <laughs> oh my god but um you know i'm i'm great i'm deeply humbled by by it i never forget ever i think that's a positive note to wrap things up with um where can people find you online um and do you teach any workshops that are coming up well i sure am <laughs> first of all i have a website it's maggiesteber.com and it's problematic i'm i'm getting ready to change it but it has too many bells and whistles but you can see my work there um i'm trying to so i'm an older photographer and i've been in the business for a long time and i'm not going to say how long because <laughs> i have a young spirit but i'm using instagram to reinvent myself and uh, I have a new project that's nothing like my documentary work. It's called The Secret Garden of Lily La Palma. And it's my story, but interpreted through these fantastic kind of fan fantasy kinds of photographs. And uh, so I'm using Instagram for that. But I also, um, because I, I'm trying to reinvent myself because I've been around for a long time until people say, oh, well, she does this. This is who she is. Well, and no, it's not. I'm not just that. And none of us are just that. And so I created this idea of a secret garden where I could grow new ideas that were different. And I, it's a safe place for me. And so damn if the Guggenheim Foundation didn't give me a grant for this work. And so you just never know, you know, I mean, you just never know what's going to happen. Um, and so you can look on Instagram and see a lot of the work of the secret garden of Lily La Palma, who is my alter ego. And then um, teaching workshops. I'm going Thursday to Malaysia to teach a workshop and daring to see the world in a new way. And then the next workshop I have coming up is the uh, mystery workshop. I love the mystery workshop. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so freeing. And I'm teaching it in Oaxaca, Mexico during the Day of the Dead. So it'll be centered around the Day of the Dead uh, ceremonies, but it goes beyond that. And we look for mystery. And in that workshop, anything goes. It's not a photojournalistic workshop. It can be, but we're looking for mystery. And it's very liberating. And I know a couple of people whose lives this workshop has saved because it gives them a new way to regard photography that's very liberating. Mm -hmm. And boy, there's nothing like that to make your day. And then in Miami, in the first week or so of December, uh, we have the Miami Street Photography Festival and I teach a mystery workshop through the Leica Academy. I'm a, I'm a Leica ambassador. Uh, and so that's just because I've used Leicas all my career. And they're my little buddies. Uh, the Leicas are, the cameras. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but I teach, I, you know, I teach a lot of workshops and usually I post it on Owen oh, Facebook, but Facebook I don't really post much of my own work. I post the work of other people and I also like to pretend it's my own magazine or newspaper so I post articles and I post a lot of science because I'm a science nut because my mama was a scientist. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'm ready to quit my job and just come follow you around to all these workshops. They sound amazing. Well, we have a fantastic time because I'm really, I regard them as brief, intense love affairs. And I'm very intent <laughs> that everybody leaves with something. And sometimes, and this is not a promise, sometimes I actually help people get their work published. And that also gives me enormous joy. It doesn't have to be all about me. In fact, gosh, what a small world that would be. But um, it's thrilling to see how everybody looks through the viewfinder and sees something different. And I always think people come to these workshops with the beating heart in the palm of their hand and they give it to you. And so you have to respect that and do as much as you can to be encouraging and move them forward in some way. As an amateur, I could say for anyone considering photography um, doing a workshop with a professional is life-changing and it's probably better than going to school for photography to to just be hands-on with someone talk out your ideas and walk with them through the day uh, I've, I've only had a couple days of an opportunity to do that so far but I'm definitely looking for more and encouraging other people to do the same so I will Make sure to include those links on my website and promote them. And thank you so much for your time. I, I didn't expect to take a full hour, but um, thank you so much for sticking through the interview with me. Um, yeah. You're so sweet. It's just that I talk too much is the problem. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's like stick something in my mouth or just tell me not to talk so much. But I... I really appreciate that you had an interest and took the time, and I so agree with what you say. Take workshops. Don't go to school for photography. Go to school for international affairs or, you know, something else that you, and learn languages or something else that you can actually maybe incorporate, but workshops are the way to go. And also just understand that just because somebody's ultra famous doesn't mean that they're a good teacher. So you have to really do your homework there as well. But I think that's the way to go myself. And and we don't use the word amateur anymore. It's enthusiast. <laughs> Everybody is an enthusiast. It's much better. So. <laughs> and Karen, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Wander Women. Be sure to check out the show notes on wanderwomenstories.com for links to topics and resources discussed in this episode. I see that white sandy beach and your face comes to mind we walked on the twilight shores of